This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's programme... Yes, it is an impossible mission to try to guarantee the effectiveness of all human rights, social, economic, and political, cultural, of the whole people of the world. I remember feeling to myself, I'm going to get on top of this somehow. This job is impossible. Everything is very, very difficult. It's extremely hard work, but I'm somehow going to get on top of it. And it got better. This was in the backyard of 9-11. It was a new, dangerous, unknown world was starting to unfold with a lot of uncertainties, and including on that human rights front. I would say that not a single state can claim to have a perfect human rights record. There are issues of concern in every country in the world. Most of my time I was writing to governments, talking to them, calling them, but I had no hesitation of going public when I felt we needed to go public. Behind today's racial violence, systemic racism and discriminatory policing lies the failure to acknowledge and confront the legacy of the slave trade and colonialism. In so many situations around the world, there is again this contempt for the other, the contempt for the human being, the contempt for human dignity. Hello and welcome again to Inside Geneva. I'm Imogen Folks, and I'm wondering how many listeners can identify the seven speakers we just heard there. Because over the course of this summer and autumn, we're going to hear from all of them. These are the men and women who have led the UN's human rights work. They've all served as UN Human Rights Commissioner. This year marks the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And to mark it, Inside Geneva is today kicking off a special series of in-depth interviews with those human rights leaders. But before we hear from the first of them, a bit of history. We stand today at the threshold of a great event, both in the life of the United Nations and in the life of mankind. That's Eleanor Roosevelt way back in 1948, bringing the declaration to the UN General Assembly. This Universal Declaration of Human Rights may well become the international Magna Carta of all men everywhere. The world devastated and traumatised by the horrors of the Second World War, united behind a declaration that promised to respect the freedom and dignity of all peoples. Jose Ayala Lasso, now 91, remembers that as a young lawyer and then diplomat in Ecuador, the declaration inspired him. Indeed, I was uh, always, during my diplomatic career, I was uh, interested in, uh, in human rights. I dedicated my life in diplomacy to work for establishing a new international order with recognition of the obligations of the states regarding the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. You know, there was a sort of different interpretations about the validity of the declaration. Some people said that it was a declaration, non compulsory, an obligatory law for the states, and others considered that the principles established in the declaration were so important that they should be applied 
as a, a law which does not need the acceptance of the states, but they have the force to impose. And so I tried to support this second position. But until Ayala Lasso was in his 60s, the UN didn't even come close to suggesting that the Universal Declaration might actually be obligatory. The UN's human rights work was modest, a small programme based in New York. The Cold War prevented anything bigger. But then, in 1989, the world changed. It was the largest demonstration in East German history. The Iron Curtain between East Germany and West Berlin has come tumbling down. East Germany announced today it is opening its borders, allowing its citizens to go... We became, for a while at least, more unified. In 1993, the Vienna World Conference on Human Rights came up with proposals to strengthen the UN's human rights work. And Ayala Lasso, by this time a UN diplomat, saw his chance. 50 years have passed since the first uh, state, I think it was Uruguay, proposed in 1948 the establishment of the Office of the High Commissioner, but the, the, the Cold War was an obstacle that would not permit or allow the agreement on, of the states on this matter. So I decided to present to the General Assembly a plan to act to see if it was possible to enact the decisions of the Vienna Conference. And I tried to use the importance of the atmosphere created by the fall of the Berlin Wall. And in more or less three weeks, we obtained a general agreement. In those moments, the resolution created in the office of the High Commissioner was almost ready. But at the United Nations, very many good ideas are very often almost ready. Ayala Lasso's hopes of getting unanimous approval for a new UN Human Rights Commissioner was put in jeopardy when US diplomat Madeleine Albright came up with her own proposal. So Madeleine Albright, the, the representative of the United States, decided to present a draft resolution. And I was against that. So I asked Madeleine Albright not to present, not to insist on that resolution, because I used a simple argument. There were two or three African countries which were still reluctant to accept the Office of High Commissioner. And I said to Madeleine Albright, if you oblige the Commission to vote on your proposal, the African countries will vote against. So let me present myself a draft. And so you will see that it is approved. I spoke with the African countries and I used the same argument. And they considered that it was useful to follow my advice. And actually, I presented a draft resolution and it was approved by unanimity. It was necessary to cut the dialogue when it was convenient to do so. And that's how the office was Born. <laughs> the UN Secretary General, Boutros Boutros Ghali, rewarded Ayala Lasso for his work by appointing him to be the first ever UN Human Rights Commissioner. He took office in Geneva in spring 1994, and the world was witnessing the kind of terrible human rights violations the Universal Declaration was supposed to have consigned to history. The 7th of April 1994, as UN peacekeepers stand aside, 
Rwandan soldiers and Hutu militia hunt for Tutsis. Some people are shot, but many more are killed with clubs, sticks and machetes. While you were UN Human Rights Commissioner, there was Rwanda. This must have been very difficult. I took office on the beginning of uh, March, if I remember it well, and uh, less than a week after taking office in Geneva, I was uh, observing what was happening in Rwanda, and it was absolutely necessary to do something. So I decided to to go to Rwanda to see what can I do. My office was not yet really established. I had not a dollar, and I went with two advisors. And what I saw in Rwanda was terrible. I was uh, obliged to walk in a land where you found hundreds and thousands of killed people in the most outrageous manner. So it was terrible. The impression I received was an impression of criminality, of uh, not to believe on human nature and the goodness of human nature. But uh, that was my sentimental reaction. I was also an administrative officer of the United Nations, and I was obliged to do something. And we'll hold the, we'll do the discussions in English. Oh, yes. Yes, good. Yes. <clears throat> but do what exactly? Ayala Lasso went to Rwanda. In order to appeal to them on behalf of the moral values of humankind, in this news archive, we can hear him urging an end to the killings. Urgent, immediate measures to stop the violence. In fact, by that time, hundreds of thousands of people were already dead. The High Commissioner's office was in its infancy. It had almost no budget, very few staff, and the UN had already proved pretty helpless in the face of atrocities in Bosnia. The only uh, actions I considered useful in those moments were to talk with the government, which was presided by the, the Hutus, and to talk with the chef of the rebellion, General Kagami Tutsi. And Kagami told me, he said something which impacted me. He said, I am doing the war to stop the massacre. But the government said something terrible. They say, Kagame is a criminal. He has forgotten that we, the Hutus, are 80% of the population. And the Tutsis are 20% of the population of Rwanda. And if he persists in the rebellion, we will exterminate the Tutsis. That was the official declaration of government. You said you reacted in a, the, you described it as a sentimental way, a human way, many would say, but you also had to do something. But still confronted by what you saw in Rwanda, did you ever wonder, what's the point? Can I achieve anything? Yeah, yeah. When I was appointed, many officers of the United Nations ambassadors and of the American government offered a dinner to me. And one of the senators of the United States made a speech. And he said to me in the speech, you have accepted an impossible mission. And I said, yes, it is an impossible mission to try to guarantee all human rights, social, economic, and political, cultural, even the right to development of the whole people of the world. 
I said, that is an impossible, but something should begin to see if that is impossible really, or if step by step that could be possible. And I consider that the best way of acting, I will try to dialogue. I will try to make the governments who are violating human rights, that they are against history, that they are acting in confrontation with history. So I will use the word, I will use the dialogue. And then at the same time, I consider the importance of having in each country needing of it, an office of the high commissioner. So programs of technical assistance, when I arrived to the office, I think there were two or three. When I left the office, there were 400, because that was my vision of how to act. Now, just before we hear more from Jose Ayala Lasso, here's some news about upcoming episodes of Inside Geneva. Regular listeners will know we come out every other Tuesday. So in two weeks' time, as the Taliban continue to deny women their rights, we'll be asking whether the UN, which has strict principles of equality and impartiality, should still even be working in Afghanistan. Anyone who believed in something called Taliban 2.0 had never actually spoken to an Afghan woman human rights defender because the Afghan women human rights defenders, they knew what was going to happen. They did their best without a loud microphone to tell governments, to tell international organizations what was going to happen. Despite the fact that it does seem Every month or three months or so on, a new decree comes out that pushes women further back into their homes. We have to keep being here. And that's what women and girls tell us. They want us to be here. They feel the need to have the UN to be here, to be present and to keep going back. And in four weeks' time, we'll be continuing with our human rights series and hearing about Mary Robinson's sometimes stormy time in office as UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. Well, I was advised that it wasn't a good position to take. All my knowledgeable friends said, Mary, I wouldn't take that job. Over and over again, I kept saying to myself, I represent the first three words of the Charter of the United Nations, we the peoples. That's what I represent, not the states. Now, back to today's podcast, Nowadays, there are UN human rights offices all over the world, from Ukraine to Afghanistan to Colombia or Yemen, and countries which don't allow a presence, like Syria or China, still cannot escape scrutiny. Their human rights records are regularly examined under the universal review process. Successive human rights commissioners have approached the job in different ways. And don't forget, over the course of this summer and autumn, we'll be hearing from all of them, some preferring dialogue, others moving quite quickly to call out abuses publicly. Looking back, I wondered what Jose Ayala Lasso thought. Since you had the job, there have been a few others. And it's interesting what you said there about dialogue, because some human rights commissioners go down the very quiet, behind-the-scenes dialogue, and others are more outspoken. What's your view? Is there a point when the human rights commissioner should say, 
to a government, stop. This yes. is bad. Yes, I think both instruments are good. But there are moments, as you are saying, when uh, the High Commissioner should demonstrate the power of the world convictions to press, to uh, exercise pressure on governments. I went to Cuba. I went to visit Mr. Castro. And uh, I talked to him very frankly. I had two lists of uh, political prisoners. My office had established a list of 120. And the NGOs gave me another list, more than 1,000. And I brought both lists and spoke to Castro. And I told him, you should act because this is a fact. You are violating human rights. There are political prisoners, 120 or 1,000. But you should act. You should liberate. You should liberate some of them. So, uh, as you say, dialogue is useful. But when dialogue is not enough, a strong political denunciation is required. And the High Commissioner should use both methods. And now? With disinformation colouring almost every major global event, a hunger crisis in the Horn of Africa and a war in Europe? I think that uh, we are facing a tremendous change in the organisation of the world. I think that uh, the human reason is being uh, subject to a transformation in the operative action of the knowledge. How do we know things? How do we analyze what we see? What we see is the reality or is not the reality? We are looking at reality and we ask ourselves, where is it really the reality of things? I think that we should take into consideration that if you see human rights through the lens of communism, probably you see them in a different manner when you see them through the eyes of democratic governments. I do not think that we should be permissive in order to accept violations, but we should try to understand the reasons of the order, why the regime, the totalitarian regimes act in a way, why? To act in accordance with principles, that's first. The basic principle is human being. Human beings are to be respected, they are equal in dignity and in rights, as the Declaration says in in the first article. We should not lose our faith in the capacity of human beings to act correctly. And that is perhaps not a bad message to end this edition of Inside Geneva on. Stick to our principles, keep listening and never lose faith in our common humanity. Don't forget, we'll be exploring these themes in the coming weeks and months with other former human rights commissioners. For now, my thanks to Jose Ayala Lasso and to you for listening. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva, a Swiss Info production. You can email us on insidegeneva at swissinfo.ch and subscribe to us and review us wherever you get your podcasts. 
check out our previous episodes, how the International Red Cross unites prisoners of war with their families, or why survivors of human rights violations turn to the UN in Geneva for justice. I'm Imogen Folks. Thanks again for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.